Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Thanks for joining us again for this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. In a time of turbulence and opinion from all sides, whether it's political, theological, whatever it is, the question we're going to pose today is, is every hill worth dying for? Steve, why don't you take it from here, explaining what this question is and what's behind this question? Well, the question is related to a common idiom where people will criticize you for taking a bold stand or they'll criticize you for taking a certain stand on an issue that they don't think is essential by saying, is that really a hill worth dying on? And sometimes you'll hear this in relation to abortion or homosexuality, uh, but you'll often see it in things that people describe as you know, indifferent or audiophora. And the Christian answer must be that the scriptures speak to every area of life, but because we live limited 100-year lives with 24-hour days and 365 days in a year, there are inside of us limitations on the capacity of what issues we can address. And so behind this question is the idea that Christian Reconstruction certainly applies to everything, but perhaps every hill isn't your particular calling for your life. So you said something in terms of essential, whether or not something's an essential doctrine or something that everybody should agree on is the hill to die on. So I can see the extremes here. I can see someone who says, God's going to take care of everything. We don't have to get worked up over anything. Therefore, we shouldn't do much to the person who is, if he were close, would take you by the shoulders and shake you and say, don't you see how important this is? This is the crux of it all. So rather than saying there are no hills to die on or that every hill is a hill to die on, is this a subjective call or do you think the scriptures make an objective call? Well, I believe the scriptures are pretty objective in that not one jot or tittle of God's law should be taken away. And so the Christian can't be one of compromises. We cannot say that because of where we live or the time period we're in or because of the culture we face that we can compromise on God's standards. But I think that there's a difference between being a person who's compromising and a person who is a uh, perfectionist. And so often I, I quote this to myself that, perfectionism or the expectation for everything to be exactly how I want it to be is just an excuse for procrastination. It's an excuse for not doing what God has called me to do today. For example, God's called many of us to participate in churches, called us to participate in families, in businesses, in the civil sphere. And obviously, none of these institutions are pure. None of them are without sin. And yet we have a call to participate in these broken systems in a way to redeem them or to reform them or to make them holy like our Lord is holy. And the strength we have as Christians is knowing that whatever sinful institution we're working inside of, 
we're working towards the holiness that God has inscribed in his law and the absolute standards he's given in his scripture, but that there is a space in time and people and resources between what we are today and where God is taking that institution in the future. And the mission that I believe Dr. Rushdoni has given to us as friends of Chalcedon is that we would move the ball forward, perfecting those institutions, even though they're not perfect yet. So you're not saying what's true for me may not be true for you. What you're saying is pay attention to where you are, the jurisdictions and the environment that God has placed you and reconstruct in that area. Yes, I would say that the scripture is very clear that the wisdom from above is pure, but it's from above. And so that wisdom is supposed to come down to where we are, where maybe there isn't a certain purity and that there is certain gifts in your life or certain relationships or certain associations that you have or situations you've been put in that the Lord is going to use to cultivate certain hills that are meant for you as an individual to die on, even if that looks different than my life or another Christian who lives in Bangladesh or another Christian who lives in South Africa. We're all going to have different hills, even though we all have the same perfect and pure standard. Okay, so hills to die on. If we go back to the first century, there were Christians who took a stand on denying Caesar was greater than Jesus. Um, They could have lived pretty happy lives, or they could have continued living, I should say, if they had just said, okay, and crossed their fingers and say, I don't really mean it. So there are some who look back and say, well, they didn't have to die. If you go ahead and make an issue on something like that, then you're not around to go ahead and evangelize people if you've been taken out. So do you think this hill to die on idea could be applied to first century Christians? Well, certainly. Uh, A great quote that comes out of that early period of the church is encapsulated by St. Augustine who says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love or charity. And just at the same time that there are Christians who are committed to unity against Caesar's commands to worship him as Lord, because that was an essential, there was St. Paul's admonition there in 1 Corinthians and Romans to respect the weaker brother, right? So there are some things where Christians are to have liberty. What days... Uh, You celebrate certain festivals. St. Paul describes uh, holidays of the moon. Or St. Paul describes people who said, we don't eat meat, we only eat vegetables. And St. Paul says to those people, recognizing what vegetables do to you, let the weaker brethren have liberty in these things. And so even there in the first century, when they had the certain and definite stand against Caesar, where all of Christendom was united, that Caesar cannot be Lord, because Jesus is the only Lord, they also had a sense of liberty where they said, if somebody wants to restrict themselves to only eating vegetables, well, let the weaker brethren do what the weaker brethren do and don't constrain everybody to their hill. Now we can see that happening in our culture where we become so knowledgeable of little peculiarities in our own spheres 
that we're not even able to work together with other people from different denominations, right? I'm from a Reformed Anglican church. Uh, some people are from OPC or PCA or RPCNA or whatever group you belong to. These distinctions, instead of fostering unity around the essentials of the gospel and the salvation by faith alone, we've allowed these to be divisive issues that prevent us from working together and actually hurting the future and preventing the progress of the church on earth. So today with the prevalence of social media, you find that there are people who have declared themselves to be the ones who should tell, how, tell everyone else how they should think and how they should live. And if they disagree, it's not uncommon within circles that I would say are Christian, that one group is going after another group and making fun or showing how wrong they are, that what happens is people sometimes feel the peer pressure of, well, if this person's smart, I guess I should go along with this person says and, and, and sort of forget about what my gut reaction would be. Yeah. And that is very difficult to see because if you look at the Dr. Rushduni's work, even though today many Christians pretend that Dr. Rushduni is a polarizing figure, that he might be some type of extreme teacher, Dr. Rushduni was really committed to the essentials of the faith. What every Christian of the Protestant flavor can agree on is exactly what Dr. Rushduni was pushing in his work, and that is a commitment to the Holy Scriptures applied to all of life. But Dr. Rushduni also expressed his kind of, and this is a, a bad word to use in modern circles, but his, his desire for ecumenicism or working amongst Christian groups in his book, Foundations of Social Order. He outlines how the early creeds, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Statement of, of Chalcedon, that these ideas were the unifying essentials that held the early church together. He explains how the Christians could recognize each other because they were all baptized according to the Apostles' Creed. So if you can find the summary of faith in the Apostles' Creed as what unites us as a common brotherhood, that should be the hill you are dying on. And then when you get to the third and fourth century, as the Nicene Creed is formulated and accepted by the church universal on the East and on the West, defining who the Trinity is and how it works in the world, that should be the essential we're working to understanding. And the difficulty and the division comes when we start adding our own essentials on top or in contradiction to the essentials that the church has held for two millennia. So I mentioned gut reactions. Now, I'm not an advocate that says, if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. Go by your emotional state or how you reason. But I think it's important that if a Christian has studied and applied God's law word to life, a lot of times before you can find the chapter and verse, you have this instinct that says, that's not right. I don't think I should go there. And I don't think it's bad to acknowledge that in yourself if you're not just going on wishful thinking or your personal preference. I remember when Bill Moyers of PBS interviewed Dr. Rush Dooney, and he sort of was making it a personal, like, you don't like this, or you don't like that, or you say we should do this. And Rush was very clear with the man, and he said, you know, there's a lot of things in Scripture I don't like. They actually rub me the wrong way. 
But what does that matter? We're talking about what God's word says. And I think that's where, if you know what God's word says, you're less likely to be swayed or guilt-tripped by those people who might be more articulate than you, but not necessarily more faithful to the scripture. Right. And that's really talking about the idea of conscience that St. Paul describes when making these decisions. That gut reaction you talked about, a lot of the times that's part of the Imago Dei inside of you. And really what we should do as mature Christians is recognize that if we see other Christians attempting to be faithful to the scripture, even if they come to differing or contradicting conclusions in what we hold dear, there should be a sense of charity and mutual submission where we're willing to walk with a brother and recognize that while they, not, while they might not be where you are today, that if they are faithful to the scriptures, that the conscience and the Holy Spirit working inside of them will eventually lead them to the place of truth. And I think there's a great anxiety amongst many believers that they feel a responsibility, that we have to drag people into believing exactly what we believe if we're going to be friends, instead of a reliance that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is perfect and that it is the one doing the work, not my intellect, not my persuasive arguments, and that while the Lord may use me as a tool in delivering that, our most important commitment is having that relationship with the person that focuses on what does the Word of God really mean and how does it apply to this situation. Exactly. I've often used the analogy, if you get a picture of the map of the U.S., you've got the West Coast, you've got a pretty big expanse, and then you get to the East Coast. Well, if I am talking to somebody and they're in New York and I'm in California, and I'm trying to share with them the truths of Scripture, and now they're in Ohio, well, you know, they're still not in California, but they've traveled a distance. And part of maturity in Christian faith is seeing when people are moving in the direction of the righteousness that Jesus calls for. Even by the time the person gets to Kansas, they're still not in California, but look how much ground they've covered. And my husband and I often comment on the 15 years that we had the privilege and the honor of being mentored by Dr. Rushnuni and his wife, I mean, they had to be incredibly patient with these two people who were on fire but didn't really have a lot of orthodoxy. And I think we've got to get good at recognizing the spirit in other people. And as you said, be patient the same way we have to be patient with children. My children are all grown now. I had to be patient through all those stages where it was difficult or it was unpleasant or I would have rather done something else. But the bottom line is, this is all a process. Sanctification is a process and we're still in the middle of ours. Right. Well, this is really why I'm thankful for the work of uh, Cornelius Van Til, uh, because we're really tempted to think of truth and understanding Christian theology in the sense of, all right, now it all makes sense. It all fits together. This is the perfect puzzle. It's finally a complete picture. And 
when you work through the, the books of Dr. Rushduni and through the various articles of Chalcedon, you can see how this mosaic of different scripture passages, of different theological ideas, how they all fit together in one complete vision for how Jesus envisioned the future of the world. And once you get that picture, it's hard for you to go backwards to the disjointed view that you might have had as a Baptist or a dispensationalist or any other type of, of views. But what is even more difficult is that that process where you put together the pieces of the puzzle was partially and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so while we often confuse our intellect with the Spirit's inspiration, we shouldn't do that to other people. So often we make the enemy of our own Christian theology, the person who believes the exact same thing we believed five months ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. And we began to make enemies with those who are on the exact same path. Uh, I had a pastor who challenged me to imagine what I used to believe five years ago and then have charity on that person because it was the charity that I received from the Reformed believers in those times that brought me to understanding the, the full-orbed vision of Christian dominion. And so my encouragement has been to see that when you do have that patience and lead people into the scripture, the scripture is not going to lead the people the wrong direction. And if they follow a theology that's aberrant, you know, if they think, well, dispensationalism is really there in, in Revelation chapter 9, well, as they study it and get deeper into it, they'll begin to recognize because the Holy Spirit will show them the disjointed realities. And so we don't need to fear that people are going to get trapped as long as we continue to read them and feed them the scripture that shows the truth to this. God's word is its own defense, and we don't need to fear that it's not going to be potent enough to convert anybody. So true. Um, I think people often underrate the Holy Spirit and decide that he needs our help. In other words, we can see where this person's thinking is wrong. And so some people choose to use sarcasm or, you know, irony or whatever they're going to do to try to convince somebody on how wrong they are. And I think what's missing, of course, is the humility that acknowledges what you just said. Um, you said five years ago. Sometimes I look back and I think, what did I think six months ago? Wow, um, I moved on from there. So, so maybe this is part and parcel why those with the hoary head should be listened to because we know much more than we knew when we thought we knew everything. <laughs> and so um, I think the, the time comes where you basically stop and listen and say, is there anything I can learn from this person, even though I might disagree on nine out of 10 points? Um, I remember when I used to uh, take martial arts, there was this expression that was written out that said, a broken clock is correct twice a day. And I think we should be at least humble enough to say, is there something I'm missing in my thinking that, believe it or not, even an unbeliever, God can use an unbeliever to make me understand this truth? That's right. Well, one of the, the things I've had to repent of as a young, ambitious Christian who was writing on the internet, um, I went through a, what my mother-in-law called the thunder puppy face after the, the sons of thunder we see in the scripture where I was in a very cage stage version of reconstruction where I wanted to be 
the purest version of Reconstruction. And so I would look at every other Reformed thinker that was in my echo chamber, whether it was Ligonier or John MacArthur, and I began to write articles criticizing those in the Reformed camp, and then finding places I could find distinctions between myself and maybe other even Reconstruction thinkers. I began to think, oh, well, this Reconstruction thinker doesn't really like wearing robes, or this one doesn't believe in this particular interpretation of Matthew's gospel in the seventh chapter. And I began looking for the tiniest little details and unfortunately publishing those online, attacking uh, the pulpit ministries or writing ministries of other pastors. And my wise pastor in his very uh, discerning and comforting and non-confrontational way came to me and he gave me an illustration that I have never been able to shake in dealing with other Christians. He didn't tell me not to write it, and he didn't say he disagreed with me or that it was wrong. I think that whatever I had written, he agreed with. But he gave me this illustration. He said, I want you to think, Steve, about how many Christians there are in the world. And so we came up with a number. We said, okay, so of all those Christians, how many of them do you think are Protestant? And we came to a, you know, a much smaller number, about half of those. And then of those Protestants, how many of those believe in the inspiration and the authority of the scripture? So we're getting to a, a smaller sphere of influence, okay? Then among those, how many of those embrace the spirit of the gospels of grace of the Reformation? And so now we're down to an even smaller group of people, okay? And among those Reformed Christians, how many of them are post-millennial, okay? Now we're down to maybe a... <laughs> an even smaller group. And of those post-millennials, how many of them are committed to the cause of Christian reconstruction? And so now we're down to maybe a, a few hundred churches in the world. And he said, okay, so think about that. Which pastors are you attacking? <laughs> and I was filled with a, a sense of shame in that here I have this picture of Christ's mission to cover the the, cover the earth as the waters cover the sea from east to, to the west. And yet here I was so inwardly focused that I was shooting arrows in the backs of the people who believed exactly what I believed for 99% of everything, but was finding fault with that 1%. And so he encouraged me, you know, if you're going to go about doing this, uh, why don't you find some enemies that are worth fighting instead of taking down the people who believe 99% of what you are working on. And that is something I've really tried to, to work on as, as a pastor and as a young Christian, because I can see that by myself, the vision of reconstruction is way too large and way too uh, encompassing for me and my one church to accomplish everything that the Holy Spirit and our Lord Jesus has planned for this world. And that I need people at different times in their walk and in different areas of reconstruction to really bring God's kingdom on earth. And so I've, I think, less attacked our reformed brethren, um, but still held to those essentials with the common cause of Christian reconstruction guiding my thoughts and my actions. There's a, a big danger if all you do is concentrate on what you don't agree with, with people who agree with 99% of what you agree with, you lose touch with being able to talk to people with no religious background or foundation. Because if you're fighting doctrines that most people won't even know they exist, that people dispute over, as opposed to 
things that the average Joe in our society is hurting with. It, it, you know, problems with family, problems with depression, problems with employment, problems with what's happening in our government. And so you will lose touch with the ability to communicate the full gospel to people in that situation. If all you've been doing is had your head in the weeds discussing with yourself or other people what's wrong with this particular permutation. And I remember one time a woman said to me, she said, you know, it really would be good if we could communicate the ideas of reconstruction and theonomy from the beginning, rather than having to wait for someone to come up through a whole way of thinking that doesn't, you know, that puts law against grace and doesn't say that, um, you know, that God initiates the relationship with people that she thought that what had to happen is people had to go through a watered down version of Christianity before they could hear the true comprehensive nature of our faith. And I said, that's why Christian education for children is so important. We don't have to have them learn what's not true. We can have them learn the truth initially so that they become better representations of what God's people should be. That's right. And I think that that applies really not just to the idea of communicating the faith, but around communicating the mission of Christian reconstruction. I think that many of those who are part of these watered down churches can really resonate with the the cause of Christian reconstruction, the idea that Christ's kingdom will be successful on earth, the idea that Jesus Christ is still presently working in the lives of believers. I don't think there's anything controversial about that vision of Christian reconstruction. And yet, how many discussions begin with, all right, but are you going to stone a disobedient child? Are you going to put someone to death for adultery? Now, certainly, we believe those things as the scripture teaches them. But there is a place for Christian Reconstructionists to begin our discussions, to begin our arguments by picking the vision and leading with that in Christian Reconstruction in that we recognize that what Jesus came to do, he is actually actively accomplishing him. Now, there's a, another man who doesn't belong to the Christian Reconstructionist camp. This is uh, Tom Wright or N.T. Wright, who has made himself wildly popular by proposing that exact same thing, that Christ's kingdom will be victorious on earth. Now, he's an Anglican, and he has had some aberrant views, like on women's ordination and some other strange things that he comes up with. But what's captivating so many of the evangelical or Presbyterians or Anglicans or evangelical Reformed people in the world is that he has a purpose behind his hill to die on. His hill to die on is not just some strange esoteric religious idea. It's an ideal for where the world can be. You see, what should give us great confidence in what Dr. Rushduni has written is that it is based on the sure and certain promises of victory of God for this world. And so when we go out and share that with people, when we go into other churches, we're not looking to pick a fight. We're looking, we're looking to conscript those people where they are to join our fight. And so I think that's a huge radical shift in how we should view our movement. 
it should be not one of dividing so that we can be the king to decide what this particular inspiration or interpretation of scripture means. It's rather, if we have this great vision of what God is doing on earth, as the Lord's Prayer teaches us that the kingdom of heaven is invading the kingdom of earth, then we're going to need to have a full armory full of Baptists and Presbyterians, Methodists and Evangelicals who are willing even though some of them might be less trained to take up their swords and to go storm the gates of hell. Right. We've got to get beyond soundbite theology and encourage people to be well-read and to dare to read people that they might not agree with on 50% of what the person says, but that the person comes up with something that gives a deeper and richer understanding. You know, if you look at Jesus's life as it's basically described in the Gospels, he talked with people, he hung out with people that the respectable people of the day might not consider that it was correct to hang out with them or why bother, right? Well, we've got to adapt to a time where we don't make categories that basically immediately isolate or kick out other people. And I know Dr. Estuni took a lot of heat when he would say things like the kingdom of God is more than the church. And a lot of people said, well, see, he doesn't acknowledge the, the institution of the church or the role of the church. He most certainly did, but he didn't look at it as a bunch of buildings or a bunch of denominations, that these were the brothers and sisters who had been adopted by Abba Father. And rather than trying to take people out of their church and have them come to your church, the better mission is to share the full and complete gospel, not throwing out the laws of the Old Testament, but not denouncing or saying is irrelevant that Jesus came at a time where he was now calling people even to a higher authority than their religious leaders in the past had called them to. So the goal isn't filling up our church building. The goal is a faithful people who can expect and are in expectation of God's blessings. That's right. Filling up the earth until every knee bows. Now, that's very important. And I think what we need to focus on in our conversation on hills to die on is perhaps destroying other Christian churches is not the hill to die on, or that our distinctions on minor things are not the hills to die on, because we have a very important and large goal that is worth dying on. And back in the Chalcedon Report decades ago, uh, John Stuss wrote an article called uh, Meat Axes and Purists, where he talked about his political experience dealing with this idea of, of hills to die on. And he said that there's this idea in politics that when you're coming against the Democrats at this time or the liberals, that the objection is that you should use a scalpel, you know, make tiny changes and come to compromises rather than use a what John Stuss described as a, a meat axe and take down the big brunt of the problem. And I think here's where the distinction lies with hills to die on. When you're dealing with Christians who are believers and committed to the scripture, who you know have certainly a personal relationship with the Lord, we can have disagreements, but we're not going to take the axe to them. Right? We're not going to tear them down. 
because we're saving the axe for something else. We're saving it for the big, great battles of our age, the battles against abortion, the battles against the acceptance of homosexuality and divorce and adultery, the battles against the perversion of our children, the battles that require a united Christendom. And what we've allowed to happen is we've been battling amongst different Reformed denominations so much that we've become impotent as a united force fighting against the great battles that the world is calling to us. You know, 100 years ago, when Dr. Van Til was working with Gresham Machen, they called together churchmen from all different types of denominations into this, what would be Westminster Seminary, this group of evangelical reformed leaders first meeting at the Reformed Episcopal Seminary, and then later at Wheaton, recognized that they needed a coalition of reformed and evangelical people if they were going to take on what he described as humanism that was invading the understanding of the scripture. And so now we have, thanks to that stand, with a meat axe for things that mattered with this composite of different reformed denominations, the great legacy of J. Grisham Machen, the great grandchildren of Machen and Van Til who have gone on to start many churches, many ministries, many colleges, many families around the principles of the doctrines of grace because they were willing to link arms over what really mattered and for their vision of a Christendom that conquers the powers of this world. Now, I think that's a hill worth dying on. And I'm willing to put my arm around an OPC pastor and say, together, we're working for building Christ's kingdom on earth. And I'm willing to do the same thing for a Reformed Baptist minister. Even though we might disagree on 5%, we recognize our common goal is Christ's crown rights here on earth and seeing that succeed. And that's not compromise. Some people would say, look, you're compromising if you do that. It's only compromise if you're working on your own agenda. But if you are working on the big agenda of the kingdom of God, then you're going to realize that it's probably not all going to be accomplished in your lifetime anyway. And I think for a lot of people, they're, they're looking to get a quick result. Well, if you want to get a lesson from those who understand this but aren't believers, take a look at how the last 50 years has moved the dial to the point that 50 years ago, things that would be considered, you must hide them, you should not even consider them, are now accepted, are now accepted. And if you don't buy into it, you're the one who's the, the, the narrow-minded person. And so they're willing to be patient. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the enemies of God understand much more how it is that cultures change than the people of God? That's right. Well, and I think the, even the image of a hill to die on is important here. Because if you imagine a castle fortress up on a hill, which is how the medievals built them, you can have your own castle. Uh, but if you're the only one manning your hill, it doesn't matter how tall and how fortified your castle is. The enemy's soldiers are going to come, scale the walls, take you out. But if the hill you choose to die on is one that you can say, this is protected by the word of God. This is inspired by the Holy Scripture, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And you're able to coalesce a group of your reformed brethren to join you on that hill when the storms come when the enemy attacks, when division 
is attempted, you will all be on the same hill together. And you won't die because you won't be alone. Right. You know, the whole concept, is this a hill to die on? Well, imagine if you're on that hill and you do die. You really have to ask yourself the question, then when you come face to face with the Savior, with the Redeemer, with the Lord, is he going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Make sure that you're working on God's criteria, not your own criteria. And I think it does us all well if we have people in our lives that we go to and say, what do you think about what I'm about to do? Or do you think that this is a correct posture to take? And be willing, be willing to hear something negative. I, I can remember, I, because like I said, we had the benefit of um, having all this time with Dr. Rush Dooney and his wife, there were so many times that we would come, sure, we had done something right. <laughs> and we actually wanted a pat on the back for it. And I remember Rush looking at us and saying, why did you do that? And suddenly, all this pomp that we had about how what great warriors we were for Christ, he actually pointed out, you just gave up ground by leaving in indignation. And it was a lesson that um, I thought of many times when I'm in counseling situations with people. And what they want to do is they just want to burn the bridges to show how faithful they are and saying, well, if you burn the bridges, then you don't have a bridge. <laughs> and so right. that's the kind of lessons that I think come from not being so full of yourself and finding good mentors who will dare to tell you the truth. Well, the expression goes, the more you learn, the less you think you know. And I think that that was certainly true of Dr. Rushdoony. I can't think of another figure who was as well-read as Dr. Rushdoony, but he would be so humble if you listen to his questions and answers in his lectures of admitting that there was still more for him to learn and to know. And so all of us who probably do not, we are a thimble in the, in the pale of what Dr. Rushdoony read, seem to have a certain confidence that he did not pretend to have. And there's a great lesson in there. But the other thing that's important about these differences and distinctions and hills to die on is something that I learned from Dr. Greg Bonson. And Bonson, who was the master of Christian apologetics and really tearing down Satan's strongholds, also viewed other Christian denominations with a great deal of charity. I think in one sense, he recognized that it was hurtful to his apologetics to have all of these various Christian denominations. But the other sense, he also recognized the value in different denominations. He would use the phrase denominations and relate it to the way we use denominations of money. You know, I'm not sure if I can remember exactly how he defined his various denominations, but you can imagine perhaps the, the Anglicans would be a $1 bill and the Baptists are a $5 bill. So, and so on, you know, the Reformed Presbyterians are a $20 bill. And maybe you could make a hierarchy of this as, as you start off in one church, maybe you learn and develop and become a more important denomination. But Dr. Bonson would explain that there are different stages in different believers' lives when different denominations speak to their needs. Perhaps somebody who's not an intellectual type person, they're really into the uh, the scriptures and understanding them and applying to their life, but they're not into the philosophy of all of it behind it. They need a $1 denomination church that will get them until the Holy Spirit piques that interest in them. And so rather than saying 
Some of these denominations are good for nothing. Dr. Bonson said, let's see their value and try to use the denominations as our Lord is leading. And eventually we'll get to the place where the Lord's going to redeem or buy back his entire kingdom using these various denominations. And it's not going to be a single bill with even numbers. You know, it's funny that you said that because the thought that came to my mind, because this would go also in terms of coins, a lot of people will not run into a pay phone like used to be prevalent when I was growing up. But try taking a dollar bill and putting it into the slot that required the dime or the quarter. Didn't matter how much money you had. If you had a hundred dollar bill, you still couldn't make that phone call. Or if you're at a parking garage and you have to go ahead and put in bills in order to get a parking ticket. Well, if it only costs $2 to park and all you have is a $20 bill, that $20 bill, yeah, they might accept it, but you're going to be gone. You're going to have lost 18 of that. So I really like the analogy, which is the first time I've ever heard it. That basically says that God has certain people and places and movements at the right place at the right time. And just like Esther was in her position for a time that called for what she could do, it behooves us all to not try to seek out glory someplace else, to recognize where we are is where we should be and take that as how, take that as the marching orders for not what hill to die on, but what straight and narrow road to travel so that we get to the realization of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's right. Well, and again, I've probably said it on this podcast before, but um, if you find the perfect church, right, that has the perfect reconstruction theology and no one there gossips and the pastor shows perfect 35-minute sermons and never makes a mistake, don't join because you'll ruin it. Now, (laughs) The, the other part of that is in the church that you're at, you're going to have bumps, you're going to have warts, there's going to be issues, but God puts you there for a very important reason, not to puff you up, but there's this role that you're supposed to spend your life tending the garden that God gave you. The children he gave you are not an accident. They're supposed to obey you and you're supposed to love and to cherish them. The wife that the Lord gave you, that's also part of God's providence. And the church that you're in, Now, of course, there are circumstances when any of those covenant relationships can be broken, but our ideal should be to recognize that we're put in this square of garden, just as Adam was put in the garden, to tend, to name it, to give it purpose, to give it a vision and redeem it for the Lord's purposes. And that requires us to put our hands to the plow, to wipe the sweat off our brow, to get to work and recognize that even though some of these people are difficult, you know, even though our garden sometimes has weeds and pests, that the result, the fruit that comes out of it was worth pulling the weeds, was worth scaring away the pests, was worth putting up the fences, rather than moving to a different garden and trying to start over. Recognize this is the garden, the vineyard, the place the Lord has put you today. Exactly. So you first need to know the kingdom, what it is, That comes from knowing God's law, knowing the word completely so that you know that the direction that you're supposed to go, because more than anything else, the law gives us direction, which is the path to take. Recognizing along the way, there will be resistance. There'll be internal resistance from yourself with your own sin, 
but the external resistance of other people's sins. But I think the key is that we should always be working towards restoration. In other words, if our fight is only to tear down and it's not to build up, then we're not really seeking the kingdom because Jesus was all about restoration, not compromise in restoration, but restoration. So picture yourself with the person who drives you the most batty, and now you're stuck in an elevator with this person because it doesn't work anymore, and you're going to be there for eight hours. You're going to fight, or are you going to try to communicate the importance, knowing that maybe you'll never get out of this elevator, but you will have been faithful to the Great Commission? Amen. And that's the purpose and the goal and the vision. Uh, Dr. Rushton would often quote the second psalm. And I think the second psalm also answers the question that we have. Is every hill worth dying on? Well, ultimately, there's only one hill worth dying on. And that is the hill where it says in the scripture, I have sent my king upon the holy hill of Zion. And if you're dying on that hill for the purposes of the kingdom, and you can say before your Lord, on the day of judgment, Lord, this is the hill that I put my family, my reputation, my future, my wealth, everything that I have has been for the purposes of your king and his holy hill of Zion, then I'm sure you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Yes, and when you were saying that, and this is an interesting thought to close on, there was a hill that was, that was worth dying on, and that was Golgotha. And Jesus died on that hill. And that's why our focus needs to be on him, because he died, he was buried, he rose, and he ascended. And as you pointed out, Psalm 2 lets us know that he's got this. <laughs> it's not that's like right. we have to run around frenetically or it all goes away. When he said it is finished, he meant it. And he looks down and laughs at those who try to make it happen themselves. Make sure you're not the one who's getting the scoffing from our Lord by focusing on his hill and not your own. Indeed. All right. Well, you mentioned a couple of people. Um, any recommendations for books? Certainly. If you want to understand Christian liberty, it's very important that you understand the foundations of social order and what Christians have held in common and how that's helped them be successful. So, of course, Foundations of Social Order. I also mentioned a Chalcedon Report article that's called Of Meat Axes and Purists, and that's on the Chalcedon website. If you go back to around the year 1998, uh, John Stoos wrote that. Very good. And also just for people who may not be familiar how the website's set up, you can also put that title into the search and it should come up easily. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.